In the 1987 movie Wall Street, Gordon Gekko says greed is good. And from the financial scandals, Ponzi schemes, tax dodges, frauds, and so forth that we see every day, it seems like a lot of Americans agree with them, including a lot of Christian preachers. This week, I visited the Instagram page, Preachers in Sneakers, which reveals the price tags of the shoes worn by various celebrity pastors. And there I learned that one man preached in the light gray, glow-in-the-dark Adidas Yeezy Boost 750 sneakers, which retail for $1,211. Another was in Alexander McQueen Graffiti Tread Slick Leather Boots, which are $790. And another prosperity preacher was in the Nike Air Fear of God One Sneakers, which are $548. He wore fear of God on his shoes, but he didn't have any in the pulpit. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that church leaders are obliged to drive the most beat-up used car or buy the bottom of the bargain barrel stuff to make a false show of piety. But there is something wrong when church leaders feel like they have to make a show of wealth and extravagance because that's worldliness. And I wish the problem stopped with people's shoes. But we've got Creflo Dollar saying, the Holy Spirit says, give me $65 million for a private jet. Joyce Meyer has a $23,000 commode, and I could go on. But friends, the truth is financial impropriety doesn't only touch celebrity ministries. Statistics say that between 10 and 33% of American churches will be the victims of embezzlement at some point. Friends, greed is everywhere. And the Bible is clear that greed is not good. That's what we're going to see today as we conclude our look at the first letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Today we'll be in 1 Timothy 6, verses 2 through 21. If you have a Bible, please turn there. And today we're going to just see two points. First, we're going to see that greed is very dangerous. And second, we're going to see three remedies that believers in Jesus Christ need to utilize to avoid the folly of greed. Start with our first point, the lethal dangers of greed. Paul's writing to his longtime friend Timothy, who's hoping to lead the church at Ephesus. And the Ephesian church is in disarray. So Paul has written this book to tell Timothy, here's how you can set things right. He says, you've got to fix the church's corporate prayer. He says, you've got to fix its community life. You've got to fix its notion of gender roles and church leadership. And now at the end of the book... Paul reminds us once more why all of these things are in such disarray. And the answer is that the church had countenanced false teaching. Again, look at verse 2. Paul says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So Paul wants Timothy to teach the true gospel and to pass on the instructions that he has received in this book to tell the church, here's how you should operate in light of the gospel. That's the only way things are going to get fixed in Ephesus. Because for too long, 
the church has listened to false teachers. People who taught something different than the gospel taught by Paul and Timothy. People who taught something different than what Jesus himself had taught. And friends, this is very important for us to know. Jesus preached the gospel. The same gospel that the apostles preached. There are many false doctrines out there today that dispute this. They say Jesus taught one thing and Paul taught something else. But here Paul says is an acid test by which you can discern false teaching. If someone tries to drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul, or if someone says, well, we, you know, we don't need to listen to Jesus' words, or Jesus' words belong to a different era, only Paul is relevant now. Friends, that is false doctrine. In the same way, if someone teaches a doctrine different than Paul's doctrine, saying that the gospel of the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not the only way of salvation, if that's what they're claiming, if they're denying that salvation is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or if they deny the truth we looked at last week, that the truth accords with godliness, that the true receipt of the gospel will produce good works in the life of the believer, if someone rejects any of that, they're a false teacher, Friends, these issues are not up for debate. These are not the sorts of things that reasonable Christians get to disagree with each other about. These are dividing line issues that separate orthodoxy from heresy. And Paul says, whoever takes the wrong side on these issues understands nothing. If you look down at the very end of this passage in verse 20, you'll see that the Ephesian false teachers claimed they had knowledge. But Paul says, their knowledge is false. These spiritual quacks have no real insight at all. Instead, they are filled with arrogance. And they would have to be to imagine that they know better than the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And understand that this is not just some academic issue theology. There are real impacts that are generated by false doctrine. And we see that here. Paul describes what the effects have been in the Ephesian church. There are all kinds of foolish controversies. People are arguing and quibbling about words and arguing about doctrinal minutia, all the stuff we talked about and warned about last week. And these controversies have divided the body of Christ. They've caused church members to be characterized by envy, dissension, slander, reflecting the false teacher's own depravity. Why did these false teachers do this to the Ephesian church? Why did they corrupt its doctrine and divide the body? Well, we might say Satan stood behind their scheme, and that's right. Chapter 4 tells us their doctrines came from demons. Fair enough. But what did Satan use to entice these false teachers to tell these lies? Well, Paul explains at the end of verse 5 that they were imagining that godliness is a means of gain. These teachers wanted to get rich by peddling spirituality. And you aren't likely to get rich by preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4 talks about the life of the apostles. And there Paul says the apostles were homeless, they were hungry, they were poorly clothed, they were treated like the scum of the earth. They weren't wearing $800 shoes. If you want 
to use spirituality to get rich like that, you have to advance a false spirituality. And that's what happened in Ephesus. Greed led these guys to teach a false message. And, you know, maybe the false teachers even believed the lies they were peddling. But I want you to know it doesn't matter how sincere you are if you get the gospel wrong. And what they did generated horrible destruction. And that's because greed is terribly destructive. And Paul says that just a few verses later. Look down at verse 9. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, verse 10 is often misquoted as saying money is the root of all evil. But that's not what Paul says here, and that's not actually the teaching of the Bible. Money is morally neutral. It's just the medium of exchange. It's an agreed-upon standard that people use to value things. There's nothing inherently good or bad about money. Money can be used for good purposes. It's good when we get a fair wage for our labor. It's good when we pay our family's bills. It's good when we give to missionaries. And money can be used in an evil way. It's bad to waste our money or we can spend our money on sinful, false pleasures. But I want you to see ultimately it's not money itself that's problematic. The real issues are how do we spend it or more foundationally, what is our attitude towards money? And that's Paul's concern here. He's not warning about having money. He's warning about loving money, about greed, about what he calls in verse 9, the desire to be rich. The Bible tells us that desire is not morally neutral. That is a temptation to terrible wickedness. Now, here in our materialistic culture in First Colony, we might not see why this desire to be rich is so bad. But I would say the fact that we cannot see its danger right away is what shows that this is such an effective temptation. Paul says it's like a snare. A snare is a trap that you use when you hunt animals. You put some food on the ground as bait. You wait for an animal to come along and it sees the food and it's interested. And it gets close and it sniffs around and eventually gets close enough to open its mouth and bang! It is captured immediately waiting to be finished off. That's how temptation works. It doesn't show us the awful consequences up front. No, it tries to entice us, promising us a good time, drawing us in closer and closer, and it isn't until too late that we realize we've been hooked, drawn into sin and its terrible consequences. And friends, that's how greed works. It looks very alluring. Wouldn't it be nice for you to have the financial freedom to do whatever you want? to never answer to a boss again, to take a vacation whenever and wherever you like, to have the cars and houses everyone else admires. Wouldn't it be nice for your family to be financially set for life in the midst of these uncertain times? That's how greed beckons to us. That's its bait. And if we linger around this bait too long, if we become enticed, by this desire to be rich, the trap will spring. 
And what happens next, Paul says, is we will commit some really terrible acts. Look at verse 9. He says we will give ourselves over to senseless and harmful desires. Or verse 10, he speaks of all kinds of evil flowing from this. Because we will do whatever it takes to get the money that we crave. And some people have been driven into terrible sins through greed. Murder, right? Adultery. Prostitution. But for most people, it doesn't start out that dramatically. Maybe it starts with a lie on our tax forms. A bit of office politics to advance our career. Maybe we become comfortable using or destroying people at work to get ahead. Lying or using creative accounting methods to make ourselves look better so that we're first in line for a promotion. Maybe we embezzle money. And we say, oh, it's just a loan. I'll pay it back soon. You know, when we commit these kinds of sins, we keep saying to ourselves, I only have to play this hardball for just a little bit longer, just until I have enough. But Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Now, J. Paul Getty was the richest man in the world. Well, one time somebody asked him, how much more are you going to need to feel secure? And he said, more. And friends, that will be our answer too if we are ensnared by greed. We will always want more. We will never have enough. We may set a goal for ourselves, right? Oh, if I just get X number of dollars, then I'll be fine. Then we're driven to get this sum of money. But you know, if we obtain it, we'll look at it and say, that doesn't look as big as I thought it did. And we set a new goal. We say, oh, if I get that, I'll be content. You're never going to be content. Because friends, greed entices us onto a quest characterized by great evil, which has no satisfactory conclusion. And along the way, greed blinds us to the true cost of our chase. It obscures from our vision the people that we've run over to build our empire, or the sins we've committed, and the corners we've cut, and the lies we've told to get there. It hides from us the hardness of heart that it took to get to the top, and the terrible lovelessness that accompanies that. And it hides all of this mess behind the rationalization that I have to do this to provide for my family. More than that, the love of money entices us to use our money in evil ways. It tells us we've earned the right to be shockingly wasteful or shockingly lazy or sinfully self-indulgent. Friends, greed is not safe. The love of money is like playing with fire after you've doused yourself in gasoline. Because these sins are not without consequence. The world tells us, if you get a lot of money, you're going to buy happiness, you're going to get the fairy tale ending, you're going to have stability. That's a lie. Over the years, I've known a number of people who were extravagantly wealthy. I've got to tell you, most of them were among the least content and most unhappy people that I've known. Greed offers a lie, and if you buy into it, you will reap devastation. In the middle of another passage that compares temptation to a snare, in James 1.15, we read that sin brings forth death, and that's what Paul's basically saying here too. Greed begets terrible consequences. Because as we chase money, we start to view people differently. We start to see them only as a means to get ahead or a hindrance to obtaining our goals. And you know, that new callous perspective about people isn't something you can turn on and off. You'll start to view your friends and your family in the same way. You'll start to see love as spending money on somebody. 
You'll start to perceive people's value as how much are they going to take from me. You'll cheat your family at a time they ought to have in service to the almighty dollar. You'll begin to trust the things of the world more than the things of God. You will believe in the wisdom of the world more than the Bible. And you will ultimately be deceived into thinking that sin is safe. And where does all of this lead? Paul tells us very plainly at the end of verse 10, it will lead you away from the faith. It will lead you into apostasy, renouncing Jesus either by word or deed. And its end is ruin and destruction. The Greek word translated ruin here appears only else in, in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul talks about the destruction of the flesh, the pains of illness and death. And the Greek word translated destruction here is used many times and overwhelmingly, it's always used to describe eternal condemnation, or almost always. So the life given to greed reaps suffering, death, and hell, period. Now, we might not want to hear this today, because maybe greed is our pet sin. Maybe we want to hear, yeah, greed's bad, but you know we're all guilty of it, and God's just going to overlook it in the end. Friends, that's not true. In 1 Corinthians 6... Paul speaks about lifestyles that show that someone has not been saved by the gospel. This is a passage we might know because we often read it in sermons about sexual ethics. Because it tells us very clearly that sexual immorality and homosexuality are inconsistent with the gospel. And that people who live lifestyles unrepentantly given over to these sins show that they don't really belong to Christ. But I want you to listen to this passage with fresh ears now. And listen to what else Paul puts on this list of unregenerate lifestyles. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Greed is on this list. The unrepentantly greedy life is the unsaved life. Idolatry is on this list too. And in a very real sense, greed is idolatry. Because greed is an invitation for you to become a living sacrifice dedicated to your bank account. Make no mistake, Jesus warns us in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus tells us money can wind up being a false lord, a rival to God in our hearts that can cause us to hate the living God. And Jesus says, who are you serving? Are we serving him or are we serving money? He says the answer can't be both. Greed is a false god. You know, greed, greed is also covetousness. It's coveting money. Colossians 3.5 tells us covetousness is idolatry because it absolutizes something that's not absolute. It substitutes materialism into the rightful seat that God should occupy as the center of our lives. So greed is idolatry. And the unrepentantly idolatrous life will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6 says. Neither will the life 
uh, that is characterized by swindling. That is theft. That's another sin motivated by greed. And so we see here, greed is triply implicated by this list of lifestyles that shows someone does not belong to Christ. So do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. The life marked by unrepentant greed is under condemnation. The life marked by unrepentant greed needs to be saved by Jesus or it will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there's some great news, which is that Paul says to the Corinthians, such were, it's past tense, such were some of you. They used to be greedy. They used to be idolatrous. They used to swindle, but not anymore. Why not? Because they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified by Christ and the Holy Spirit. That is, they were saved. Friends, greed is something we need to be saved from, and greed is something that God is able and willing to save us from by the power of the gospel. But the life that surrenders itself to greed needs to know it stands under God's wrath. Proverbs 28.20 says, Whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. So greed is extremely dangerous. All right, but how do we avoid falling prey to it? Well, we find the answer as we come now to our second point, which consists of three remedies that Paul gives to believers to protect ourselves from the danger of greed. And the first one we find in verse 6. And what we're going to see here is Paul tells believers, protect yourselves by, from greed by pursuing godliness, which is marked by contentment. Verse 6, Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The false teacher hopes to get rich through heresy. Greedy people hope to get contentment through material gain. But these perspectives are folly. And we see that as we're reminded of a sobering truth, which is that, friends, we're going to die. And whatever we heap up in this life doesn't follow us into the next Ecclesiastes 5 says, As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Just as he came, so will he go. In other words, you can't take it with you. So don't put your hope in something that won't last. Don't crave gains that you're inevitably going to lose. Instead, Paul says, seek gains that you can't lose. And where do these gains come from? He says, godliness. Not the false godliness of the heretics, but true godliness, which we discussed last week. A reverent mindset fixed on serving and obeying God in performing good works and avoiding the things God wants us to avoid. That generates true and eternally lasting gain. But Paul wants us to know that godliness also generates something for this life too. It generates contentment, a mindset that liberates us from the endless demand to keep up with the Joneses that doesn't need $800 shoes to keep us happy. A mindset that says, I can be content only with food and the clothes on my back. Now, when Paul says this, understand he's not telling us to be ascetic. He's not telling us to go take a vow of poverty. No, this is Paul's mindset in Philippians 4.11. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Sometimes we will do well financially, and sometimes we won't. And what Paul says here is, your contentment shouldn't be tethered to your finances. No, wherever you find yourself, we can be content. How? 
Well, this is the context for, for Paul's famous statement. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul can be content in every situation because he knows Jesus, and Jesus gives him strength for every occasion. Hebrews 13.5 says the same thing. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's the promise that Jesus is with us in every situation that enables us to be free from greed and find contentment no matter where we are. So believing, friend, stop thinking that true and lasting gain comes from money and stuff. See that you can't take it with you. But what we can enjoy forever is something that is available to us right now, which is the presence and help of Christ. And as we pursue godliness, we'll better understand that Christ is with us. And that knowledge and experience of Christ will help us to keep things in a right perspective. Friends, in the end, what we really need is Jesus. And with that knowledge, we will find contentment because he's always with us, believing friends. We come now to the second remedy Paul gives for greed, and that is that we need to invest in that which will last forever. Let's jump ahead a bit down to verse 17. Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them, and we'll stop there. Paul wants Timothy to give particular instructions to the rich people in the Ephesian church. Now, when American preachers come across passages like this addressed to the rich, usually we'll say something like, compared to most people in the world, all of us are the rich. And that's true. The poverty line in this country is higher than the per capita GDP in 91 other nations. So being poor here means you're doing pretty well in about half of the world. And yet that statement cuts the other way too. Because it reminds us that wealth is not an absolute indicator, it is a relative indicator. So in our society, even if you're making what in a lot of countries would be a good wage, you might still be pretty poor here. So, yes, in one sense, this instruction to the rich is generally applicable to all of us. But it is particularly applicable to those of us who are doing very well financially. And here's the instruction. First, Paul says in verse 17, Warn the rich not to be haughty. Wealth often travels with arrogance, but this arrogance is not well-founded because life is short. That's why James 1 says, The rich man should boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Riches are pleasant while they last, but life goes quickly, so keep some perspective and don't be puffed up. You won't enjoy your riches for very long. But second, Paul wants Timothy to urge the wealthy not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Friends, money is an unsteady foundation if you are looking for personal security in this life. There's a great verse in Proverbs 23. He says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. You know, money has a tendency to vanish very quickly. Sometimes that's because we make dumb choices or because somebody swindles us. Often that's because of large economic trends that we can't control. There have been a number of upheavals in the last 20 years, right? And right now we're experiencing inflation. We've seen markets crash. Lots of things can happen. And then your good-looking position financially doesn't look so good. 
Friends, don't trust money as your hedge against the difficulties of life. Instead, rich believers and all believers, put your trust, verse 17 says, on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If you want stability, trust God. He is a steadfast rock in the midst of this life, and He is a faithful and generous provider. Again, James 1 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is kind to all of us, and everything good in our lives ultimately comes from God, even our money. Sometimes I've had wealthy people ask me, is it wrong to enjoy the wealth God has given me? No, it's not. It's not a sin to be rich. Enjoy what God has given you. What God gives us, in whatever measure He gives it to us, is for us to enjoy and to do good with. It was the false teachers in Ephesus who tried to forbid people from enjoying the kind gifts God has given to us. But Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.4, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. We are not ascetics, fleeing from everything that might look like fun and enjoyment. But we have to be careful. Because if you're wealthy, it's very easy to start imagining that your security and position are dependent on your wealth. They're not. Your destiny is in the hands of the Lord, not in your investments. In the same way, if you're rich, it's easy to imagine that you've blessed yourself, that what you have is because of your skills and your intellect and your hard work. But friends, don't rob God of His glory. Whatever you have comes from God. So don't lose your perspective. Don't let your riches deceive you. Don't love money. I said a minute ago, it's not a sin to be rich. But I caution you. Most of the rich people in the Bible are incredibly wicked. There's a reason for that. Because wealth is a huge temptation. So guard yourself by trusting God. And use your money well in a way that honors Him. And Paul tells us what that looks like. Look at verse 18. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says here the same thing he says in Ephesians 5.1. Imitate God. God does what is good, so should you. How? By being rich in what matters, being rich in good works, in obeying God and doing what is right. Particularly, what Paul wants here is believers to be generous and to share their wealth. To do good to everyone, Galatians 6 says, especially those of the household of faith. To help needy believers meet their needs. And again, rich believers, I want to say to you, you have a privilege to be able to do this to a level that most of us can't. You have the ability to finance things that are good for the mission and people of God that cannot be easily financed through a general collection. Now, yeah, your stockbroker and your tax guy might not like you doing that. They might say, well, this looks like a waste. But guess what? Paul says this is actually an eternal investment that reaps a bounty that will last forever because there are treasures in heaven, eternal rewards. The Bible talks about this in many passages. We don't exactly know what the rewards will be, but one thing that we know about, the, about them is this. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Unlike wealth in this world, tre heavenly treasures don't depreciate. They don't get stolen. They don't decay. They endure. Here is wealth 
you can take with you. Here is a steady investment that's always wise. Store up treasure in heaven. You say, well, how? The Bible tells us there are many ways believers can receive eternal treasure. Matthew 5 says, suffering persecution and loving your persecutor will be rewarded. Matthew 6 says, generosity to the poor and prayer and fasting that is intended to honor God will be rewarded. James 1 says, enduring affliction in a godly way will be rewarded. 2 Timothy 4 says, if you're craving the return of Christ, that will be rewarded. 1 Peter 5 says, if you serve as an elder in the church, that will be rewarded. 2 Corinthians 5 says, what you do in your life will be the basis of rewards. And here, Paul says that as we are generous, as we share with our fellow believers who are in need, we will receive eternal rewards because of that. Friends, if you want to lay hold of what is actually the good life, it doesn't come from cars or houses or private jets or $800 shoes. In the end, the good life is eternal life. Live in a way that reminds you your hope is not in this world and invest in the world that is to come because that lasts forever. So be generous with what you have now. We come now to the last thing Paul says here, which is this. We need to remember that we're at war and we need to fight temptation until victory is ours. Look at verse 11. Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Paul speaks to Timothy, and here's what he says. He says, you've got to flee from greed and what greed generates. And we might not like that because we say that sounds like retreating. Retreating sounds like defeat. But friends, retreat is sometimes strategically wise. And the Bible tells us sometimes we will encounter temptations that no matter how spiritually mature we are, we still need to flee them. 1 Corinthians 6 says flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10 says flee idolatry. These are powerful temptations that can overcome us in a moment, no matter how sanctified we are. So if we encounter these temptations, we need to retreat. And here Paul says greed is the same way. When greed is calling to us, we need to flee. Because as we've seen, greed can cause terrible destruction very quickly. But Paul doesn't only say flee greed. He tells Timothy, as you flee greed, here's what you should pursue. And he identifies six characteristics Timothy should pursue, which draw us closer to God and bring about good. What are these characteristics? Well, first Paul says is righteousness, living in line with God's own character, living out what God has declared us to be in Christ. God has declared believers to be righteous because he has applied our sin to Christ and Christ's perfection to us. That's not a legal fiction or an accounting trick. No, God has empowered us to be what he has declared us to be, and so we need to pursue righteousness. Of course, we're not going to do this perfectly, but we should grow in victory over sin and increasing obedience. Second is godliness, which we've already discussed. Third is faith, trusting God that believing he'll perform what he has promised. Fourth is love, caring about other people and being willing to endure sacrifice to benefit them. Fifth is steadfastness, the ability to endure hardship knowing that God is with us and at work in us, even in our worst moments. And sixth is gentleness, not always having to assert ourselves, but showing restraint and humility in how we deal with others. And friends, taken together, these attributes don't only reflect Christ, they form an opposite picture to greed. Greed is about selfishness and arrogance, seizing what we can get, destroying people who stand in our way. 
But these attributes show us how to love God and others. Loving people as the image bearers of God that they are, not just as obstacles or means of getting ahead. Gentleness will check our temptation to always arrogantly think everybody needs to know everything that's going on in our head all the time. You know, when the economy changes, we don't have to be anxious if you apply what Paul's saying here because you have faith in God and you know God will take care of you. Steadfastness because you know that God has taken care of you in hard times in the past and he'll be faithful to see you through these as well. This may not be the wisdom of the world which says, hey, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. No, but we're not to walk by the wisdom of the world. We are to walk by the wisdom of God and these attributes tell us what to pursue. Next, Paul says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Believers, we are involved in a war. We have adversaries. Satan and his demons are arrayed against us outwardly. And even inwardly, we battle the flesh, right? There are impulses within us that crave all that looks good and feels good and makes us feel important. Friends, we're in a war and our enemies are strong. We must fight and it's not easy. You know, Christians often evangelize and say, come to Christ, your life will be easier. Come to Christ, your life will be better. That is often not the case. I remember Wayne Horton here used to say, my life was pretty easy until I became a Christian. Then things got a lot harder. And I think that's what we should expect. There's a reason Paul says so often in his ministry, he has to toil or struggle or labor because this is war. And we must be loyal soldiers fighting obediently to Christ. We must war against the temptation to sin and greed. We must war against false teachers who would pervert the gospel. And not only are we to fight, we are to persevere and we are to prevail. Look at verse 12. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This verse has confused many people over the years. Because there are other verses in the Bible that say things like this in John 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. All right, so when we read this, we understand that Jesus is saying, when you get saved, when you first believe, you receive eternal life. But then we look at this verse, 1 Timothy 6.12. And we see Paul is talking to Timothy, who's already a believer, and he says, take hold of eternal life. And we get confused. Because shouldn't Timothy already have eternal life as a believer? Why does Paul tell him to take hold of it again? How are we to make sense of this? But this is what we need to remember. Yes, when we come to faith in Christ, a true repentant faith, we are justified. We are adopted into God's family. We are promised eternal life at that moment. And yet a lot of people profess Christ and later show that they didn't really belong to him to begin with. Because they fall away. And so while the Bible insists on the eternal security of the true believer, it also tells us false believers will fall away. And so we read things like this in 1 John 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained they are not of us. The Bible warns us in the strongest language against apostasy. And the Bible is filled with exhortations to finish the race well, because true faith will persevere to the end. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So yes, true belief instantly obtains salvation. And yet the Bible tells us 
that whether our belief was legitimate or not will be demonstrated as we live. So it calls on us to abide in Christ and not depart from the faith until the end, until the time when our faith becomes sight. And what we have here to Timothy is an exhortation in that same vein. This is a call to Timothy to finish the battle well. For him to adopt the attitude Paul expresses in Philippians 3, where he says, I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, if anybody could have sat back on his laurels and said, well, I know I'm saved. I had the most amazing conversion experience. So now I'm just going to take it easy and loaf for the rest of my life and enjoy heaven when I get there. It would have been Paul. That's not how Paul thought. Instead, Paul said, I'm going to strive. I'm going to strain. I'm going to fight because there's a prize to win. And I'm going to finish this race well and I'm going to win the prize. That's what he's trying to instill in Timothy here. See, Timothy had made a profession of faith. In verse 12, Paul says, you made the good confession. Timothy had publicly said he believed the gospel, maybe at his baptism when he became a church leader. But Paul doesn't want Timothy to just be somebody who makes a profession and falls away later when things get hard. He wants Timothy to show it was real by persevering to the end and fighting the good faith. And so Paul says to Timothy, verse 13, I charge you, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, Paul gives Timothy this very solemn command. And we know it's solemn because Paul invokes witnesses here. Witnesses who don't just see Paul give the command, but who are watching Timothy's life. Who are watching to see what Timothy's going to do and how he's going to fight the good fight or not fight the good fight. And who are these witnesses? God, the giver of life, whom Paul says later in this passage is the blessed and only sovereign. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no mortal eye can see. God is watching. And Paul says, so is Jesus. And in these verses, Paul says some interesting things about Jesus. He says, not only did Jesus show himself to be the Christ, the Messiah, but he also says Jesus made the good confession. It's the same thing he said about Timothy in verse 12. Just like Timothy proclaimed the gospel publicly, so did Jesus. And Paul singles out the encounter between Jesus and Pontius Pilate here, the Roman governor who handed Jesus over to crucifixion. You might remember Pilate spoke to Jesus, Luke 23, 3, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You know, throughout most of that day, Jesus had stood silent through false trials and through mockers that reviled him. But now this Gentile governor plainly asks Jesus who he is, and Jesus answered him, you've said it. Jesus confirmed it. Jesus proclaimed his own lordship. Jesus made the good confession. 
And I think Paul makes this comparison to Timothy because he wants Timothy to recognize Jesus made the good confession and he suffered for it. He was brutalized and crucified and yet Jesus did not back down from the struggle. He trusted the Father despite the hardship and won the victory. And in the same way, Timothy has made the good confession and now he's having a hard time in ministry. He's not going to face anything like what Jesus faced, but he's having a hard time. He too is to hold on to the good confession. He is to submit to the Father. He is to persevere to the end. And in so doing, he will win the victory. So, we see here, Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to hold on. Hold on because God is in charge. Hold on because God and Christ are watching. And finally, he says, hold on because Jesus will return. Jesus will return and he will conquer this earth. He will subjugate it. He will judge the living and the dead. He will end all evil. And so Paul says to Timothy, in light of the gospel, in light of all of this truth, keep the commandment unstained. Hold firmly to the gospel. Hold firmly to what I've taught you. Fight the good fight to the end. Don't give in to the temptation of greed or the other temptations that would disgrace you and bring disrepute onto the gospel. Flee greed and persevere godliness. Chase the prize until Christ returns or calls you home. And that's what Paul says to Timothy here. And he restates this again in the final verses. Verse 20, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. What's been entrusted to Timothy's care? The Ephesian church? The gospel, the words Paul has given to him, the whole package. Again, Timothy is to be careful and vigilant. He is to guard the truth of God's word against false teaching. He is to guard himself from being seduced into sin and apostasy. And so Paul once more urges him to be wise in how he handles himself, especially how he fights this false teaching. Paul says, turn away from it. Don't get dragged into its useless and foolish controversies. Don't get sucked into debates with false teachers. Because that is something Satan uses to drag people away from the faith. And Paul doesn't want to see Timothy dragged away from the faith. Paul wants to see Timothy fight the good fight to the very end. So he needs to reject the heresy and contend for the truth. He needs to believe what's true and he needs to live in line with it. This is what I want to say to you today. Friends, there's a war. You have an enemy who wants to make shipwreck of you. Who wants to draw you away from the faith. We must hold fast to what has been entrusted to us. We must hold fast to the true gospel of the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We must not give up. We must not capitulate to greed or any other temptation. We must keep the commandment unstained. We will fail. And when we fail, let us confess our sin to God and get back to work, trusting God's grace, warring all the more. We must persevere to the end because we are in a battle and we must fight the good fight until Christ returns or calls us home. So I want to end with this today. If you've never come to Christ in faith, I want you to know you are in peril. You are a slave to sin. You are under the dominion of greed and other sins. You are causing ruin in your own life and in the lives of other people near you. And you are headed for destruction. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can set you free. Turn from your sin and cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. But today, if you are a believer, are you struggling with greed? Do not be deceived. Greed is very dangerous. Fight against it. 
Do not allow the desire to be rich to control you. Instead, find contentment in Christ. Be generous with your money. Invest in eternal treasure and battle this and every temptation until the end as a good and loyal soldier. And you will have victory in Jesus. The battle is hard and we will stumble and fall. And we need God's grace, but thankfully he gives it abundantly. So we finish this series with the prayer Paul prays for Timothy and for the, ch the church in Ephesus. And this is my prayer for us as we find ourselves in this raging battle. Verse 21 be with you. Friends, may God's grace be with each of us today.